I roam a lot, and uh, I'm looking forward to bringing this podcast to different places around the country and having different conversations with different people. I'm going to roam into some places and, and have some conversations with folks that most of our farmers don't hear much from, but who nonetheless are still very, very much a part of what is going on in, in agriculture. Hello and welcome to Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big-picture conversations about what the future may hold. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I have the privilege of introducing this project, as well as your host, Association CEO John Doggett. You're going to be able to join John every month as he travels the country on a mission to advocate for America's corn farmers. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we'll make sure that the growers who feed America have a say in issues that are important to them with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. So you're going to want to take a moment to subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. That way you can take us with you in your truck, your combine, or your next business trip and never miss an update from John. Also make sure that you follow the NCGA on Twitter, that's at National Corn, and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter in your email at ncga.com. And with that, it's about time to introduce John. Anyone who's spent time in farm country will tell you it's about as far from Washington, D.C. as you can get. Not just geographically, but also when it comes to values, mindsets, approaches to problem solving, and so much more. And yet, perhaps more than ever before, the folks on Capitol Hill and the folks in farm country need each other. They need common ground. After all, food production is a national security matter. But growers are facing generational change, and it'll take a strong voice in Washington to shepherd them through. That's where the National Corn Growers Association comes in. And at the center of it all is a fellow by the name of John Doggett. Named as the National Corn Growers Association's CEO just over a year ago, he's played an executive role advocating for the interests of corn farmers for nearly 20 years. Well, like so many in this business, he traces his roots back to the farm. So, John, let me be the first, then, to welcome you to the world of podcasting. Thank you. It's exciting. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I think that a lot of people have been looking forward to it, as uh, word has gotten out that this is uh, going to be happening here. Uh, joining us also today is Neil Kasky, NCGA's Vice President of Communications. Neil, thanks for jumping on. Uh, you bet. Uh, and I am looking forward to this as well. So, gentlemen, the name of this show is Wherever John May Roam. What inspired you to launch this podcast, and what are your goals for it going forward? Well, I'm going to let Neil take the first part of that question, and I'll, I'll take the second half uh, after he finishes the first part. I, I guess, for me, it, it goes back several several years. Um, you think about the media world that we're living in, the, or microtext world, that is kind of rewired our brains a little bit to think in, in short characters, uh, headlines, punchy, attention-grabbing tweets. Um, and that's just the surface-level information that really only 
just kind of conveys what happened and, and how someone might feel about it. It doesn't explain the why behind uh, the the issue or the situation. And, and to me, it's, it's just about understanding why something happened. Uh, knowing that, why it happened, why people feel the way they do is the best way to, to solving problems. Always has been. Uh, I'm guessing it's probably always uh, will be that way. And, and solving problems uh, is really, uh, at least for our members, is, is what we're paid to do uh, here at NCGA. And more than anything, I, I think I just want to get behind the the headlines. I want to get um, just beneath the surface of some of the priorities that we that we work on to shed some light on on the thinking uh, behind them. And I guess more important than that, the, the people behind that thinking uh, that you just you, you can't do that uh, on Twitter. You can't do that on a, a press release. Uh, it, it has to come in a conversation uh, like like we're having here. And John, what about you? You're uh, the lucky one who gets to have your name in the show. It's called Wherever John May Roam. What does that mean to you? Well, you know, I travel a lot. I go all around the country, do a little international travel, but mostly uh, I travel across the, the Midwest and back and forth to D.C., and I spend a lot of time in our headquarters in St. Louis. I roam a lot, and uh, I'm looking forward to bringing this uh, podcast to different places around uh, the country and having different conversations with different people, and not only different locations, but different conversations. I'm going to roam into some places and, and have some conversations with folks that most of our farmers don't hear much from, but who nonetheless are still very, very much uh, a part of what is going on in, in agriculture. Uh, so we're going to have some conversations with somebody from the beer industry. We're going to have conversations with somebody from the environmental community. We're going to have conversations about diversity and, and inclusion so that uh, we can bring some of these conversations to the tractor, to the combine, uh, to the pickup truck, so that the folks listening really feel like they're part of, of what it is that uh, is going on in their organization. That's really one of my favorite things about it is is when you're talking about a group as uh, wide-ranging and diverse as corn farmers, uh, you're talking about folks that spend a lot of time out on the tractor or in the combine, and it's uh, a great way to reach uh, a demographic that traditionally hasn't really been targeted by a lot of other media efforts. Well, certainly not. It has been amazing to me, as I have mentioned to some of our growers and some of our board members, just how many people listen to podcasts that I, I never thought they would be listening to podcasts, but they do. So it's not really news to anybody that this is a little bit of a tumultuous time, both in agriculture and in Washington, D.C. right now. And I know there's always a lot of buzz over the State of the Union around this time of year. But from where you sit, what would you say is the state of agriculture right now, John? Can we unpack exactly what's going on in this industry and and how did that influence your decision to launch this show? I think that the state of agriculture is probably more chaotic, uh, more stressful than I think even in some ways than it was in the 80s. And I, I was involved in agriculture in the 80s and remember those those very tough times. What we have now is it, it seems that a lot of things that are beyond our growers' control are influencing their bottom line and how they live, how they farm. Um, and what their rural community is doing uh, in reaction to, to some of these externalities. And so I think it, everybody is, is nervous. Uh, what I have heard from a lot of people in agriculture over and over again is, I'm really looking forward to turning the calendar from 2019 to 2020 
and having a new start with a new year and seeing if we can uh, have a, a little bit more of a normal year in 2020. And I think that's something we all want. In terms of uh, New Year's resolutions, that's certainly uh, one that I think that we all have here. It's been a very tumultuous time, but uh, it's also, at this point, it's ambitious, just with everything that's going on, to to sort of get back to that normal. Uh, John, you mentioned that you've been in agriculture since the 80s, and I want to unpack your background just a little bit more. You actually grew up on a ranch in Montana. That's right. Having come from farm country myself, I know that an experience like that does more than just shape your career. It shapes who you are as a person. Life in a state like Montana is also kind of a mystery to the kind of folks that you meet in D.C. where you spend a lot of time. So how do you explain to those folks just how big a state like Montana is? Well, the ranch I grew up on uh, was when I was a kid and still is today, uh, 100 miles to the nearest stoplight. (laughs) And when I tell people that, Particularly some of my friends, they say, well, that's, that explains a whole lot about you, John. But no, it's, it's, uh, it's very remote. The ranch I grew up on, certainly the, the productivity levels uh, are, are a lot less than they would be on a, in a cornfield in the Midwest. Our family you know, has to put a, a ton of uh, hay in that cow every winter, and we have to irrigate the hay up. Uh, and that cow and that calf are going to take 25 or so acres of grazing ground uh, in the summer to get through the summer. So it's it's not real productive country. It's rough country, a lot of a lot of mountains and you know 12 14 inches of precipitation a year. Most of that comes in the form of snow. So it's a very different kind of agriculture, but it's still agriculture. You know, talking to the friends that I have that grew up on the farm, no matter how they felt about it at the time, some folks loved growing up on the farm and doing chores, some folks it kind of graded on them a little bit, but talking to every single one of them now, whether they wound up back on the farm or not, I think a lot of them say they wouldn't trade the experience of growing up there for the world. How do you feel about it? Absolutely. I, you know, everything I have done in my life, I think has been built on that base of uh, where I grew up, how I grew up and in the things I did as a kid. But like a lot of folks that didn't go back to the farm or didn't go back to the ranch, you know, there's some, some of those pivotal moments in your childhood. I remember as a teenager, you know, thinking maybe I could get a job where I don't have to be hot or cold or wet or dirty or dusty and I could, you know, be inside for a while and that has all happened. And then when I get back to the ranch, the first thing I want to do is be outside. And get dirty and cold and hot and dusty while you're at it. Yeah, exactly. And I absolutely enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, that's not much different than uh, professional life in in Washington, D.C., though, is it really? (laughs) Well, there's dirty and then then there's filthy. (laughs) How how did that experience and and doing that work every day and and chores, how did that shape the person that you became today? You know, I I think that uh, one of the, the things that I have realized, and some of it is I've realized it much later after I, I left uh, left home, is just how much work it takes to make something, whether it's the work that it takes to, to raise a calf or to irrigate hay up or do all the things that you need to do to produce that, that commodity, and it takes a, a, so many different skills and it takes so much work. I think that's really the thing I, I've come more and more to admire about agriculture is just the depth and breadth of tools and knowledge and understanding you need to do all of that. So um, 
those of us that were, were raised in, in rural America, you know, know how much of a, an impact mom and dad have on, on our lives. So, so John, just thinking back to having been raised on that ranch in Montana, what are, what are a few of the, the things that uh, your mom or your dad taught you that still uh, hold true and impact your life today? You know, from my mom, I developed a love for reading and for music. And those two things allowed me to explore a life outside of that that small rural community in central Montana where I grew up. And it's been uh, both of those things have provided me with a lot of enjoyment and fulfillment through the years. Uh, and from my dad, I uh, my dad was intellectually curious. He always wanted to know what was going on uh, in other parts of agriculture. And, and dad's been gone now for just over eight years. But one of the things he used to absolutely love was when I would send him the brochure, the booklet, from the corn yield contest. And where I grew up, there was no way you were going to raise corn. Uh, we don't have the growing season. But he was always interested in the yields people got, how they got them. And that was just part of what he was curious about. Dad was curious about everything. And, and uh, he really instilled a lot of that in, in my brothers and I, uh, of always asking questions. And the other thing I think my dad did um, is my dad was, uh, was someone who, uh, always had an opinion and was always uh, only too eager to go ahead and express it, and he was very articulate in, in doing so. But he, he taught my brothers and I not to back away uh, from challenging things and to questioning things, and that's part of that curiosity about life that he had. And I think, you know, those those things from each of my parents have, have done me well and been a, a great benefit to me. Those sound like great life lessons, and, and I'm sure that you were grateful as life progressed that you still had your parents uh, back on the ranch and, and could go to them for counsel or advice, especially once you went off to a place like D.C. But when you first got your job in D.C. working for the National Corn Growers Association, how do you tell folks back home what the CEO of the NCGA does? You know, uh, there are so many questions people have and so many misconceptions people have about Washington, D.C., and what's going on here. When I'm at home, I get the questions. One of the first questions is, how bad is the crime? And I say, well, you know, it isn't any worse than it is in Billings, Montana or Bozeman, um, unless you go to some you know, sketchy places in this city. But there are certainly some uh, some tough areas in Montana. It's unfortunate. But the, the thing that people cannot get over is the commute. Uh, I live 26 miles from the office in D.C. And, um, you know, if I can get into work at rush hour time in less than an hour and a half, I'm just about as happy as I can be. And uh, that is just stunning to, to folks because in Montana, you know, an hour and a half, that means you could get uh, 100 miles down the road with a time to stop off for coffee. Unless there's a combine on the road, then traffic tends to uh, back up behind that. Where I grew up, it was generally cattle in the road in the, in the springtime and in the fall time. And, um, but you always kind of knew who was going to be in the road what time of the year. So how does it feel then to come back to Montana after all that time that you've spent in D.C.? One of the first things I, I notice when I get off the airplane and uh, I'll rent a car to go drive to the ranch and I find myself driving like I drive in D.C. and I have to remind myself to leave the horn alone. Uh, I don't need to drive as fast. I don't need to drive as aggressively. And I don't need to yell and swear at people that drive a little too slow. And then the pace is so much slower. It is and, and it takes me a day or two or three sometimes just to kind of let go of the stuff that occurs in this city and get back to enjoying 
you know, a, a different way of life. When I get out of town, I, I very often uh, get out to my parents' place and just kind of step out the back door, take a deep breath, breathe in the fresh air and go, whew, okay, it's time for a break. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just getting out and taking a walk or taking a drive, looking at cattle, doing the things that, that I did when I was a kid. And I enjoy it now. I certainly didn't when I was a kid a lot of times. I actually enjoy going home and working cattle with my brother. I was not wild about uh, working cattle when I was a kid, but, you know, uh, I really find a lot of enjoyment in that now. So speaking of uh, herding cattle and uh, working on Capitol Hill, are there any other similarities to life in Montana and life in D.C. that you've discovered in your time going back and forth between the two? You know, I think that D.C. gets a a bad rap, and uh, it's always amazing to me whether people in Montana or the Corn Belt or wherever, complaining about politicians in Washington, D.C., but you know what? Washington, D.C. didn't pluck those folks out of the air. We sent them to this great city. I think that's kind of what's interesting to me is how can we complain about a government that we elect? And we need to be holding our folks, our our politicians, more accountable. I tell people, and in fact, I, I was in Iowa earlier this week and had a conversation at dinner with some folks. And I said, you know, the last person you want to vote for is someone that says they're going to come to Washington, D.C. and fight and fight and fight. That's not the way life works. You wouldn't go and find your life partner and say the prime prerequisite for my life partner or a member of my family is that they're willing to fight. What about people that want to learn from one another and I do not think compromise is a bad word because that's the way things get done, whether it be on Capitol Hill or whether it be in your marriage or your relationship with the rest of your family, particularly your children. And now that I have grandchildren, I, I relate learning that lesson about what are the fights you want to have. But um, unfortunately, in, in recent years, uh, Washington has become filled full of people who want to yell and who want to fight. And I really wonder why people back outside of D.C. want to continue to send those folks. Can they please send folks that say, you know what, I'm going to go to Washington and for the first two years I'm going to listen. And if I come from a rural part of America, I'm going to meet and get to know folks who represent urban and suburban districts. And I hope that I learn about their districts and I get an opportunity that they learn about mine. And maybe we can find some common ground that we can work on some of the many, many problems that face this great nation, and we can start working towards solutions. And that's, that's what we used to do, not perfectly, because our founding fathers did not want a perfect government. They knew that this government was going to be comprised of people. But, uh, you know, I think we, we need to get back to some of those things that we used to do a long time ago that allowed people to go ahead and get along with one another a little bit better. John, you've been in Washington long enough now holding various positions that you've seen a couple different generations of elected leaders come and go. And you noted how it sort of started to skew toward more shouting and less compromise. But in that time, has Washington changed in other ways? Anything for the better or has it mostly been a backslide? I think there are a couple things. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list some some odd things One is I think we need to bring back earmarks. Historically, we've spent less on earmarks than we have on farm programs. That money is going to get spent anyway. 
And those decisions will then be reached by unelected career bureaucrats. But you know, there's been a lot of legislation that's been passed when someone who, well, I really don't have a dog in this fight, but you know, I'm going to vote no. And then somebody comes along and says, you know, you really need that bridge, don't you? Yes, I need a bridge in my district. Well, why don't we go ahead and fold that money for that bridge into this this legislation and, and you can vote for it. And it gets voted for and things pass. The other thing is I think members of Congress ought to live in Washington, D.C. and go back to their district rather than live at home and come to Washington. Uh, I remember a uh, I worked for a very conservative member uh, of the House of Representatives from the great state of Montana. And I remember when we were marking up the 1990 Farm Bill, Congressman Marlin, came back to the office and, and uh, he had been sparring back and forth with another member of, of the, the House Ag Committee on the other side of the aisle. And I said, well, you kind of pulled your punches there. And he said, you know, I kind of had to because uh, Cindy, his wife, had invited this uh, member of Congress and his wife to dinner the following Saturday. And he said, you know, I can't really go ahead and let loose and then sit across the, the dinner table in my house with my guests. And so, you know, I think those are the kinds of things and the relationships that we're not forming. Uh, members of Congress don't know one another. They might know who belongs to their caucus and who they are ideologically similar to, but they're not really meeting other folks and they're not interacting with other folks. And I think those are those are two things that a lot of folks out in the countryside will say, gosh, earmarks, that's terrible. Living in Washington, they'll, they'll get Potomac fever and, and they'll forget all about us. You know, I, I'd like to think people can do a better job than that. And I think the other thing is social media certainly has not helped the discourse at all. All it has done is allowed for uh, more shouting in a different form. You know, it hasn't done much to find truth. It certainly hasn't done much to find commonality across a wider spectrum of the political discourse. You know, I think there's uh, especially something to that point that you made about people needing to live in Washington, D.C., because... I don't know how your experience growing up in a small town was, but growing up in small town Wisconsin, I very often felt that people had to be more tolerant of other people's opinions simply from the fact that, well, you're going to bump into so-and-so at the grocery store. And so if you call him a lunkhead today, you're going to see him tomorrow and, and you have to interact and just still have to deal with each other. And to a certain extent, I think that that's a lesson that you can take from small town life and apply to Washington, D.C. and politics in general, but what are some other lessons that you think that the folks in D.C. could learn from a uh, small town in Montana? You know, I definitely think Capitol Hill is a small small city, small town. You, you only have 535 members of Congress. And if they could act a little bit more like they were living in a small town, you know, if they spent more time here and if they interacted more, they'd have to be a little bit more tolerant. They'd have to be a little more accepting. And just to kind of let stuff go occasionally, we're always looking for the next fight. We're always looking for the next headline. There's no no headlines that appear on a newspaper that says, nothing much happened today on Capitol Hill. That's not a, a headline that's going to sell newspapers. Uh, Neil, I think it's worth exploring your background a little bit here, too. You play an important role in facilitating the communication between these two very different worlds in which John lives and works so what does it take to do what you do for the National Corn Growers Association? Uh, wow, that, that's, a, that's a loaded question. Uh, I, I do want to go back to one of the things that, that John said, just in, you know, in, in Congress, we need uh, more people that know how to listen and are willing, willing to do that. And a lot 
less people that uh, are wanting to to yell. Uh, so I, I worked in D.C. for four years. So I, I don't I, I don't think I ever tell anyone that I lived in D.C. because you don't know that four years really allows you to to say that about any place. Uh, but I had that small experience um, primarily because uh, of you know something that my family just some kindness and good that came from Washington. Um, we grew up in a, in a small rural town in, in southeast Missouri, town of Sykeston. Uh, we were represented by uh, Congressman Bill Emerson, so father of who, John? Cat Emerson, who uh, right. up until a couple of days ago worked for us. That's right. And so, you know, we, we uh, just an ordinary family. We didn't uh, give much, if anything, to any uh, political party or, or person. Uh, but, you know, he, we, had a, we had a situation we needed help. And, and he did. And so he leaned in and he helped our family. Um, and I was just struck at, at a, a young age at just how, how someone that, at least to me, you know, that seemed so powerful that was willing to just kind of stand in uh, and intervene on, on our, our behalf, you know, with the federal government. And so since that day, uh, I have always uh, been fascinated by, by politics um, and, you know, people like Congressman Emerson that, you know, he was willing to to listen. So he was a Republican that probably had as many Democrat friends as as he did Republicans um, and probably didn't even, you know, have care what letter sat, you know, next to their state um, in, a, in a press release. Uh, that they were mentioned in, but I, I've always been fascinated by politics, and um, and so that fascination has changed uh, in recent years. It's almost like you know politics was a thing where you had you know that that was a, a secondary interest, and so uh, now it's like an industry that uh, has a, a hold on our our everyday lives. Uh, it's colors uh, that the colors and in, in the earbuds that I, I'm listening in this conversation today. There is a red for the I guess that's to connote uh, right side of my, my head and uh, blue to, uh, you know, plug into the left ear. Um, and so, you know, colors have been politicized. Shoes have been politicized. Sports have been politicized. Everything is filtered through a political lens. And that, that's absolutely crazy to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm dying to know. I'm a pretty curious person myself. Uh, I am dying to know why, why that's happened. And so, my career, I guess, back to your question, it's it's been in the, in the policy realm, I guess, in, in different roles and responsibilities. But it, it has been because, you know, I still believe that politics and policies can help people. Um, at the end of the day, that's that's basically uh, what we're doing here at NCGA. We, we don't support ethanol just for the sake of ethanol. We don't support trade for the sake of trade. We do those things because we believe it will make the lives of our members uh, better. And, and I, I guess, like, you know, despite the hand wringing and, and trash talking uh, about politics and the modern American model uh, of it, I, I still love it. And I'm excited to uh, explore it in, in, a, in a different way that will hopefully uh, result in a lot more listening and certainly uh, a lot less yelling. I think that's the really exciting opportunity about this podcast that you guys at the NCGA have built here and why I'm really excited to be a part of it is that you're taking the time and the effort to create that space in which conversation and consensus can develop. And so I certainly think that that's something worth celebrating. This podcast will also serve as a vehicle to kind of cut through the chatter and connect the association to the people and issues that are important to corn producers. 
So what are some of those issues that we can expect to hear about in the months ahead here? Oh, we're going to be talking in this organization about how to increase demand for, for corn. And that's going to be number one. And then number two will be how are we going to increase demand for corn? And then number three will be how are we going to increase demand for corn? We're going to be shooting at a lot of, of different targets. Obviously, one will continue to be ethanol. And then we need to resolve some of these trade issues. And we are also working very hard uh, to find new uses for corn. Can we be making plastics out of corn? Certainly, there's a lot more attention to the damage that plastics are doing to the environment. Can we make plastics out of corn? We know we can, but can we, can we do it the right way? And can we do it efficiently? And can we do it that's not cost prohibitive? So, And then, you know, I, I think uh, there's going to be some opportunities in the conservation area. Uh, there's more and more uh, emphasis from some in the environmental community that uh, uh, the best environmental uh, outcomes come from working lands and that strong belief that farmers and ranchers who are doing the right thing on the ground you know, need to have some, uh, some incentive to do so, continue to do so, and do more. And so I think there will be some opportunities for farmers and ranchers to make money sequestering carbon or doing, you know, a lot of different things that they're probably already doing some of it or even most of it. And I think there's going to be some some great opportunities there as as we move forward uh, through the rest of this Congress and into the next one. Neil, you've put together the podcast calendar here with a list of episodes. Which episode are you most excited about uh, recording and hearing in the next couple of months? Well, uh, as a as a beer drinker, uh, I would have to say that it's probably um, our, our next podcast is going to provide a behind-the-scenes look at what all went down during the great corn traversy of 2019. John, we, we lived that um, out in a hotel um, 20 miles down the road from Golden, Colorado, or the, the Beer Wars, or I, I guess some refer to it as. And uh, we're going to look at that and some of the implications um, that we might see down, down the road. Um, and that we're going to have joining us, obviously, John and I are going to be there uh, talking with you, Dusty, but we're going to have uh, our current president, Kevin Ross, uh, who has been described, and, and I quote, uh, as an internet sensation. <laughs> for his role during the Super Bowl. So, yes, yeah, so we won't refer to, to Kevin that way when he's in the room. Um, that wouldn't be right. But, hey, we're also going to be uh, at, so Adam Collins, uh, who is the chief communications officer at Molson Coors. So he, he led their response to that ad. Uh, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't know Adam until about 2 a.m. Uh, the, the next morning, and uh, he has really developed into uh, a tremendous advocate for, um, for our organization and for corn farmers more importantly. And so uh, it will be fun to uh, reenact, uh, relive uh, that, that moment um, with, uh, I guess, some of the people that were really on the front lines of that, John. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. I, you know, that was, that was about as much fun as, as we've had in quite some time. And we had the right people in the right spots. Uh, we were in the right location. And uh, sometimes uh, it pays as much to be uh, lucky as it does to, to be good. Well, the fact that you guys are still standing after tangling with the world's largest macro brewer, Anheuser-Busch, and the Bud Light brand is a testament to the fact that it's a fantastic story, and I, I can't wait to tell that one. Folks will have to tune into Episode 2 to uh, hear how you guys went to battle with Bud Light. But we're doing a podcast. You both wind up spending a lot of time on the road 
So outside of this show, what are some of the podcasts that you enjoy listening to? Well, I, you know, I listened to On Being with Krista Tippett. Uh, it's a, I don't know how to describe, uh, it deals with a lot of spiritual issues. A, she'll have rabbis, she'll have Hindu priests, and, and she covers the whole waterfront of different spiritual backgrounds and, and histories. Uh, the other one, uh, I listen to a lot of old-time radio, particularly Gunsmoke, Have Gun, Will Travel, and uh, Fort Laramie. Those are my favorite three old radio programs, and I listen to podcasts uh, with those and, and other old radio shows. Those are classics. They don't make them like that anymore. They don't. What about you, Neil? The, a little different approach, and so I listen to two kinds. Um, one, I am uh, a uh, huge fan of, I have to qualify, Olympic-style wrestling. Uh, John wanted to know during the interview uh, if you went on any of my social media properties, you know, if, if you would find anything that uh, that I would regret and that would probably preclude my employment in the organization. And I said I was a wrestling fan, so you'd, you'd see a lot of posts about that and, and his, his eyebrow raised. It wasn't, you know, that was the first time, certainly hasn't been the last time that his eyebrow has raised when I, when I told him something. <laughs> was but. he smelling what The Rock was cooking? <laughs> So, so to be clear, I, I am a, an Olympic style uh, wrestling fan, and and most of the podcasts I, I listen to, I, I'm like one of two in this country. Uh, my brother's the other, uh, but I also, uh, if I'm not listening to uh, Flow Radio Live, uh, a little plug for that. Uh, I listen to uh, Freakonomics Radio, Re- Revisionist History. I, I love that just the whole field of behavioral economics. I love understanding why people do or just learning more about why people do the things that they do or believe the way that they believe. And to me, that's just fascinating to kind of look at historic events or just things that we thought we understood and looking at it from a different point of view. I, I hope we do some of that here. I, I'm, I'm no behavioral economist. I don't think John is, uh, but I, I hope that that's the type of depth that we can provide to the things that obviously the, the corn industry cares about. Well, we will be channeling our inner Malcolm Gladwell to uh, really bring that across in the next episodes here. But uh, we're winding down here and we've covered a lot of ground in this first episode. And in laying out some of the issues that corn farmers will face in the next decade, it's pretty clear that there are some hurdles to overcome. In fact, sometimes it seems a little bit easy to just get down about the future and and wallow. So I think it's worth ending on a positive here. What are some of the things that the corn industry should feel good about, John, as we head into 2020? I have heard uh, one of our board members say, and I've repeated it a a number of times, if you haven't been on a corn farm in the last five years, you haven't been on a corn farm. And, you know, what I think is so fascinating about this industry is the innovation and the adaptation of, of technologies. When I talk to folks on Capitol Hill and they have this preconceived notion about agriculture and they quote a lot of things from you know the 60s or 70s or 80s, and, and I hold up my cell phone and say, well, what did your cell phone look like in 1979? Well, I didn't have a cell phone in 1979. Well, what did your cell phone look like 10 years ago? Well, it was you know such and such and such and such. And uh, I said, well, but you have a completely different cell phone now. Why did you get a new cell phone? Well, I've had four new cell phones in 10 years. Well, why is that? Because the technology keeps improving. And I said, so why do you think that cell phones and and technology that you're using as a consumer is moving faster than the technology we're using on farms and ranches? When we take people 
who have not been exposed to agriculture to a farm and they start understanding that uh, the equipment is running off GPS, uh, that uh, spray nozzles turn on and off when you get to the corners. You know, the, the things that we're doing now would have been unbelievable even 30 years ago. And I think that's what's really so exciting is that that technology is there on the farm. And our challenge now is to go ahead and take that innovation and that ability to adapt and take that to the other parts of agriculture, not just the production of the crop. Well, the show is called Wherever John May Roam. So, John, where are you roaming in the first part of 2020? What's on the docket? Well, uh, we just got back from uh, Vietnam and Myanmar. Uh, fascinating trip. Uh, some great uh, opportunities for the corn industry in those countries. Uh, and then next week, uh, the board will be holding their retreat in Chicago, uh, which is going to give us an opportunity to talk about strategies for the future, not just six months down the road, but maybe 20 years down the road. Uh, I'll be going to Houston for the uh, RFA meeting uh, there, their annual meeting. Uh, And then we're going to be at Commodity Classic at the end of February in San Antonio, Texas. And that will be a very big event. And uh, we'll be very, very busy with that. Wow, you weren't kidding about that travel schedule. That is an opportunity to rack up a lot of frequent flyer points there. So this has been a great opportunity for me to get to know the two of you. I'm sure that anybody listening feels the same right now. Uh, We're going to be doing monthly updates for this podcast, and each episode is a new opportunity for our listeners to learn about an issue that impacts their bottom line. And follow along with your adventures, John. So until the next time, it's been great chatting with the both of you gentlemen. Safe travels, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Yeah, thanks, Dusty. Looking forward to the the next episode. This has been great, and and I've enjoyed it, and uh, we'll be talking soon. And that is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. New episodes arrive monthly, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite podcasting app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or to sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Roam is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.